This is Adidas Brussels. Uh, what's the EU's position on transition? Well, before we talk about that, uh, a small apology. Those of you listening to uh, the last episode said that I'd see you again in 2019, which was possibly a Freudian uh, slip on my part since I, I am planning to do episodes such as this uh, this year. Anyway, that aside, um, we're back into the swing of negotiations. So in uh, the next uh, few weeks, we're going to see uh, several uh, developments taking place, uh, particularly around the move towards starting phase two negotiations in March. Now, part of that, key part of that, is a consideration of the transitional arrangements that will be put in place between uh, March 2019, when the EU uh, and the UK part ways, and the point at which the uh, UK uh, and the EU are able to conclude a new relationship, uh, which will be negotiated from March 2019. Now, uh, those of you who read the blog that I write, which is uh, easily findable, and there are links on our website, which is www.adartofbrussels.com, We'll know that I've been talking about transition um, for quite some time, but it's only now this week uh, that we've got uh, a more formal position from the EU. So uh, the uh, task force in the Commission uh, produced a position paper uh, which basically sets out the expectations and the ideas of uh, transition. Now, uh, the idea here is that you're going to need to have something to cover that period between March 2019 and when the new relationship comes in because uh, Article 50 is about wrapping up the old relationship rather than starting uh, the new one. So uh, we have to uh, set up a framework in Article 50 for how we're going to have negotiations, which is fairly standard. Uh, you can simply say we're going to have negotiations. Um, uh, but for that period in between, uh, because that will take some time, you need to have some idea about the rules. Now, uh, the model that the Commission is proposing is the one that has uh, really been the only idea on the table in, uh, in Brussels and in London, which is what we might call a, a full Monty transition. And this term comes from Jean-Claude Pires, who was the former head of the legal service for the uh, Council. Uh, somebody who knows very well how these things uh, might work. And essentially, the model is that the UK uh, in March 2019 will stop being a member, but will carry on being bound by all of the rules and regulations and the acquis of the EU through to the end of the period. So the only thing that will be different, or the only things that will be different, is that the UK is not a member of the EU, and secondly, that it will uh, not be involved in decision-making. So uh, it won't be represented in institutions, whether that's the European Parliament or the Council or the European Council, uh, uh, but it will still have to do everything else that is uh, in practice. Now, essentially what uh, this uh, position paper does is set that out in more formal uh, text. Now, the starting point 
to this is actually the length of the transition period and I've been a bit hazy about that but actually the the text is very clear it says that this goes from uh, the date of entry into force of this agreement which presumably is the day after the UK uh, leaves uh, and will end on the 31st of December 2020. Now the reason for that is uh, twofold. Firstly, uh, that date, the end of 2020, is the end of the EU's current financial cycle. Uh, so uh, we're currently in a seven-year cycle that runs to 2020, uh, where the member states have agreed broad uh, headings for uh, budgets uh, for the EU, which provide a, a framework within which the annual discussions take place. Now, uh, by having the UK leave at that point, uh, it's possible to remove it more simply from the financial planning process that's uh, uh, in train. So already we've started talking about what will happen from 2021. Uh, the UK hasn't been involved in that because it won't be a member state at that point. But uh, it, it fits nicely with that. So the UK already has made commitments about what its spending will be until 2020. Uh, so those get honoured, but then we don't drift into the next cycle. So in financial terms, it's as close to a, a smooth transition as we can uh, find in, uh, in a reasonable timescale. The second point, which is the more important point really, is that it's quite short period. It's uh, 19 months from March uh, 2019, um, and it's really very brief indeed. It's at the short end of what had been asked, been short even in the two years that the government had been talking about uh, here in London. And uh, the reason for that is that because the UK will be essentially doing all the EU stuff but without having a voice and a vote at the table, that is politically difficult for the UK uh, and so the trade-off is to make that as short as possible. Now that's uh, entirely understandable and I think there's a degree of uh, legitimacy that uh, is behind that, that why would you uh, let that situation drag on any longer than you have to, particularly if you're a, a British government uh, it's all well and good to formally hit the target of leaving the EU, but if it means that you carry on being uh, subject to all the rules and regulations, the, the remit of the court and uh, everything else, then that doesn't really look like much of a, a success. There is a problem, though, which is uh, that that period of time is really very short in which to negotiate a deep and special, or even a not particularly deep and not particularly special, new relationship between the UK and the EU. So uh, just to kind of put some technical detail around this, um, this is likely to be, this new relationship is likely to be a, a mixed agreement, which means that all the member states of the EU will have to ratify it. Uh, in some cases, there will have to be ratification by sub-national assemblies, uh, so it would be like the CETA agreement with Canada. And those of you who uh, follow these things will remember that the uh, Wallonian uh, Parliament in uh, Belgium held up uh, CETA ratification by uh, several months by rejecting the provisions and forcing everyone to go back to the negotiating table. Now, 
even without those kind of problems, you're probably looking at a year to get it through everybody's ratification procedure. So that's a year lost, that's all of 2020, which means that you've got from the beginning of April to the end of December in 2019, in which to negotiate a very comprehensive deal. Now, uh, CETA took five years uh, of negotiations. Uh, Other FTAs have taken a similarly long time. So it may be that uh, 19 months, 20 months is not really enough time. Um, Interestingly here, the framework that the UK uh, uh, is being confronted with from the Commission has has taken a somewhat ambiguous position on how long this uh, this transition might be. So it says that it will end on the 31st of December 2020. Uh, It doesn't say that that cannot be extended or that it it, it must not be extended. Um, And that's something of a retreat from the position that the EU had back in December. Back then, at the European Council, everyone was saying that it would be to 2020, end of 2020, and it would not be extendable, that it would be fixed in law and there would be no scope at all to to extend it. Now, uh, that language has disappeared. It hasn't been replaced by uh, a language with an explicit extension mechanism, so it kind of falls under kind of customary law, which would be uh, that all parties would need to agree an extension. Um, But uh, there is a recognition, I think, that uh, it's an unreasonable uh, position to hold, that uh, yes, you might avoid a cliff edge in March 2019, but if all you're doing is pushing that back to uh, December 2020, that's not really uh, very much of a solution uh, for anyone. So I think the length of the transition period is something which is going to come back to uh, haunt everybody. And certainly uh, we might expect that there will be a requirement and a need, assuming that the new relationship talks uh, proceed uh, reasonably uh, well, uh, to talk about extending that period. And that will come obviously then with complications on the financial planning, but uh, that's nothing that can't be uh, managed by uh, the people in uh, DG Budget and elsewhere. Okay, so that's the length of the transition period. Uh, What about the scope? Well, the scope is really quite simple. It basically says that, as I've already said, the uh, union law, as it describes it, should be binding and applicable on the UK during the transition period. Uh, There are some exceptions uh, to this, uh, which relate to uh, freedom, security and justice, uh, enhanced cooperation, Um, And also that there should be some scope for uh, letting the UK have a little bit of uh, margin of freedom, but very, very limited. So on foreign policy, there won't be any uh, requirements to act uh, with the EU. Um, It won't be able to take part in any enhanced cooperation, not that it was planning to. Uh, And that there will be uh, basically... uh, an understanding that the UK has to follow the rules that it currently does. Now, uh, that's, if you like, a very pragmatic uh, way of going about things. If you don't know quite what the new relationship is, the simplest thing to do is just to do, make the least change possible that there is. Now, that means that uh, this does a right to uh, bring cases to uh, the courts um, involving the UK, uh, 
either as defendant or as plaintiff, and that these things are, are consequential. Um, really, all you have to do is take the UK out of the institution. So uh, the uh, UK won't have, as I've said, people sitting on the European Parliament or the Council, expert groups, agencies. None of those will have uh, the UK presence. The National uh, Parliament won't be considered uh, uh, for uh, the yellow card procedure. Uh, for uh, blocking legislation. Uh, the central uh, bank, the Bank of England, is no longer a central bank for the, uh, the system of central banks that the EU has. And really the only thing that is possible is that uh, the UK might be invited to uh, observe and uh, take part uh, in meetings where certain conditions are fulfilled. So that's where there are legal acts that uh, uh, affect or to affect the transition period with the UK, or where it might be particularly useful uh, and in the interest of the Union, to use the Commission's word, to have the UK present. Um, particularly here thinking about the implementation of uh, EU law because uh, the UK will be required to continue implementing any decisions that the EU reaches during that transition period. Um, so uh, there are technical administrative issues that uh, relate to the UK that need to be taken into account. There's no point in designing a law that can't be uh, implemented in the UK system. That presence though is still um, very limited. It's a bit less limited than uh, the original process, which basically said the UK wouldn't be allowed to uh, observe uh, or participate in anything. Uh, there's, again, this kind of softening of a language so that there is some kind of uh, rule of reason, but very closely uh, prescribed uh, as far as it goes. The rest of the document essentially is about specific arrangements on uh, foreign policy, uh, which basically takes the UK out of uh, the actions that are there. Uh, there is uh, an involvement of the UK in fisheries policy because there will be the annual allocation of quotas. So uh, the UK will already be involved in the uh, 2019 uh, allocation because it will still be a member, so that's done at the end of this year. But for 2019, it will continue to be involved in those negotiations because the system really doesn't allow for the UK not to be involved. And uh, there are some other technical bits. Uh, the key point, though, is one that's been picked up most in the media, is that um, there should be a mechanism for supervision and enforcement, uh, basically to say that uh, if the UK doesn't uh, abide by its uh, commitments under this agreement, then there can be a suspension of... Um, benefits uh, or participation in the single market uh, and the ability to bring cases against the UK in the court for that uh, reason. Now that's really in legal terms an uncontroversial uh, position that uh, if you don't have uh, a supervision and enforcement mechanism with remedies for non-compliance, then there is no sanction available uh, and it uh, draws the teeth of the um, uh, process. 
So even though this has been uh, portrayed in the UK very much as a, a threat or a, a punishment, this is part and parcel of international law. It's something that the UK will have to get used to uh, a lot more because that's what every other uh, uh, international treaty that it enters into will have at some point, that there will have to be some kind of enforcement mechanism that goes along. That's the substance of the uh, proposal and the position paper. In terms of how likely it is that it is carried through, at the moment you have to say that it looks very likely indeed, for the reason that uh, the UK has not come up with an alternative position. All of the discussion in the UK uh, in the government has been very much around the new relationship, you know, what is the end state of that relationship going to be, rather than the transition period. And even uh, the Tory backbenches have not really engaged in uh, haranguing the government about uh, transition. Uh, we've had a uh, a brief moment with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg talking about the UK as a vassal state, which is a technically incorrect use of the phrase, but uh, is sufficiently emotive and captures enough that it seems to be the kind of default language that's there, that the UK will have to accept uh, EU uh, regulation without uh, having uh, the ability to shape that regulation uh, as it goes along. Now, uh, that's brought up the question of, well, that doesn't sound very fair, that the UK should have to take rules it doesn't have a say on, to which the EU will rightly reply, well, you have decided that you're leaving this organisation, this is an, an interim uh, situation, so um, you can't really complain about that. Uh, the only alternatives are either that the UK doesn't leave the EU, or that the UK has a transition period where nothing applies, uh, which will come with lots of other problems um, that will be economically much more substantial than uh, the ones that are incurred uh, at present. So transition is a highly political point, and it's something which I think really uh, uh, behoves us to uh, spend more time considering, because at the moment there really hasn't been that much consideration. In terms of the process, the aim is to try and reach a conclusion on transition by March, in time for the European Council then. Uh, if the UK doesn't raise substantial objections, that looks uh, possible. But uh, the key point here is, is if the UK finds itself, the government finds itself under pressure to create uh, a more bespoke transition, if it has to satisfy domestic constituencies about the need to limit the role of the court or limit free movement, then that will become a lot more complicated because these things, both those elements, uh, have uh, systemic consequences. Now, firstly, is the EU prepared to countenance such a uh, modified or half-monty, I don't even know what you'd call it, oh, let's say a half-monty transition, uh, and secondly, is there time to negotiate such a thing? Given that there are still an awful lot on the table from phase one still, and that's really easy to forget, that sufficient progress did not mean that everything is sorted by any stretch of the imagination, is there really time by October, when this all needs to be wrapped up, to sort out phase one and to sort out uh, a modified transition? Now, 
uh, I think the working hypothesis should be is that no, there isn't. And that one of the reasons why neither the government nor the EU have really talked too much about transition is that uh, they fear it might not bear closer inspection and that the uh, fragile state of the uh, British government uh, would not be uh, well served by trying to get into this particular debate. So uh, at the moment, I think we have to say that this looks like a pretty uh, good first uh, cut at doing things. Uh, the detail is in place, um, but it's something which will matter. And particularly it will matter, and this is my last point, because this is something which is likely to be with us for some time. So certainly up until the end of 2020, but if, as is likely, negotiations on that new relationship drag on, or not even drag on, but just take time, then uh, this might well become uh, a more uh, long-lasting arrangement. Now, that comes with problems, but uh, as always, it's important to remember that the temporary in politics often becomes uh, something like the permanent. And I'll give you two examples of that. The EEA arrangements with Norway, uh, Iceland and Liechtenstein, uh, set up in 1995 is a temporary arrangement. It was a stopgap arrangement uh, to deal with a particular set of circumstances back then, uh, and that's not going anywhere. And then to take a British example, let's just remember that the House of Lords has been in a transitional arrangement, uh, certainly since uh, the Blair administration, uh, and uh, arguably for the last hundred years. So, the uh, best is the enemy of uh, the good, and uh, we might well find that transition is uh, important because it might well be something that we have to deal with for quite some time yet. I will see you later this month, uh, if not sooner. Uh, have a good day.